Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour, and I'm going to be playing another interview from the archives, a personal favorite. The interview with comedian Tom Dreesen. This was a successful interview for us. Got lots of comments from people, and it's multifaceted in terms of its topics. Tom Dreesen is mostly known as a comedian as well as an actor. He's known for his stand-up comedy as well as his comedy album entitled "That White Boy's Crazy." In motion pictures, he's been seen in such films as Man on the Moon and Spaceballs, just to name a couple. He's also made more than 500 television appearances, 60 performances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and when you hear the interview, you'll kind of understand he's a pro at giving interviews. Great storyteller. Tom Dreesen has performed with many of the titans of entertainment. When you look at his career, you're going to see names like Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Tim Reed, David Letterman, Robin Williams. Tom Dreesen, along with Tim Reed, formed the first and only biracial comedy duo, Tim and Tom. He was a regular guest and very good friend of David Letterman. In fact, I believe it was the day before his very last David Letterman appearance on the Late Show that this interview was conducted. He called in. We did this interview. Excuse the less than stellar microphone. David Letterman, of course, was a topic in the interview. And the very next day, he taped the show. If you watch that episode, the very last Tom Dreesen appearance, he pulls his earlobe. He did that as a way of saying hello to me, at least so he says. <laughs> Anyhow, lots of things in this interview. He discusses his 14 years that he opened for the late great Frank Sinatra, and of course, comedy, laughter. All of these things are explored. Let's get into the interview with Tom Dreesen. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Twain said humor is mankind's greatest blessing. Our special guest, stand-up comedian Tom Dreesen, may concur. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Paul. What's going on in your life today? Well, I stayed up all night studying Tom Dreesen, and I've had two cups of Greek coffee, so I'm excited to begin this interview. <laughs> It would only take about five minutes to study Tom Dreesen, but I appreciate you staying up all night to do that. It's a joy. I think most stories are best from the beginning. If we could go into your house. When you were growing up, and we couldn't see, but we could hear, what would we hear? You'd hear hungry children <laughs> saying, "Where can we get something to eat?" I lived in a shack on the south side of Chicago in Harvey, Illinois. I had eight brothers and sisters. We were very poor. Five of us actually slept in one bed. We had no bathtub and no shower and no hot water. It was a rat-infested, roach-infested shack. I shined shoes from the time I was six years old till I was. Twelve. I set tents in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner, all to help feed my brothers and sisters. So, but I say all that and tell you that it wasn't. Um, uh, I wasn't unhappy. I think that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So I'm being facetious when I say that it, you would hear you would hear your kids saying, "I'm hungry." <laughs> it, we, we were poor, but but I again, you know, I had the love of my brothers and sisters. At one time, both my parents were alcoholic, but my my mom later quit drinking later in life. 
you know, but my dad drank till his death. But again, there was also a lot of laughter. I mean, uh, you know, my, my sisters and my brother and I, we, we had some fun and some good times too, you know. Despite all of that, were your parents humorous people? You know, not my dad, but my, here's the interesting twist. First of all, my mother had a great laugh. I loved to make her laugh, even when I was a little boy. One time she was very ill, and we later found out she had double pneumonia and was taken to the hospital. But where we lived at, you never went to doctors. We were so poor, you know, we didn't go to doctors. The first complete physical I ever had was at age 17, and that was when I enlisted in the Navy, you know. So my mom later was rushed to the hospital because she was so ill. But while she was in bed, I went in and I, my sisters introduced me as being Crosby and I came in with a, with a goofy hat and a pipe and I tried to sing to her and she just, her laughter was just, it was just, it's hard to describe. She had a great laugh. And then they introduced me as Bob Hope and I came back out and I did like jokes to her. And so I can remember her laughter and how much that pleased me to hear the sound of her laughter, you know. Now, Shining Shoes in all the bars in my neighborhood. There were 36 taverns in Harvey where I grew up at a suburb on the south side of Chicago, like I said. And there were eight taverns in my neighborhood. And that's right, and there were all these factories. So I shined shoes in all these bars. And I would go to the bar. My mother was a bartender. I'd go to her bar, the bar that she worked in last. And in there was my mother's brother-in-law, who was my mom's sister's husband. And he would tell jokes behind the bar. And I was fascinated by him hearing these jokes. I would sit in his bar. I'd go to all the bars. And I'd sit in his bar last, waiting for the shifts to change in the factory. And then I'd go back out again with my shoeshine box. But I, I went there because my mom was a bartender, but also because I loved hearing him tell these jokes. So I would I would sit in the corner. And he would. it fascinated me that he could make this sound come out of people's body by one of, by his inflection, by his timing, by his, his vernacular. It just fascinated me that the sound would come out of their bodies and fill the air like electricity and, and, uh, and unite all these people. All these people would all become as one, like he would have them laughing all the time. And so I used to emulate him. And many tell his jokes, many that shouldn't be told on a Catholic school playground. But, <laughs> but I did it. But I later find out in life that my mother had an affair with her brother-in-law and that I'm the product of that, that he was my biological father. It was later in life that I discovered this, but, it's, but it all made sense to me that I was emulating him. There's a long story making it made longer. How did it feel the first time that you performed on a stage? I can't describe to you that feeling. It's almost, I had wandered aimlessly. I came out of out of the service and I, I had a job working construction. I, I wheeled concrete, pouring sidewalks in basements. I also was a bartender. I worked on the loading dock loading trucks. I I was a teamster. And then I later dropped my cart and became management for the company, the trucking company. So I was wandering aimlessly. I didn't really know what it was I wanted to do, but I, I was frustrated with my life after four years in the service. And I joined the JCs, a civic group in my community. And one of the projects I worked on was I wrote a drug education program teaching elementary school children the oaths of drug abuse with humor. And those days, they didn't teach drug education at a college level or a high school level, let alone at an elementary school level. And it was a concept I had to get the kids laughing, playing music, and then to plant the seeds. Well, helping me with this project was a young black man named Tim Reed. And we worked real well off of one another. We had a great chemistry. And one day, a little eighth grade girl said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. 
And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us, so we set writing what we thought was material. There were no comedy clubs in those days in America. So we worked all black clubs in the North and the South and, and all white clubs as well. But, you know, when we set it out, we worked strictly in Chicago, you know, trying our material out in different places. But I remember the first time on stage with him, something that I had written got a laugh, a big laugh. And it was like an epiphany. It was like the, an old B movie where the dark clouds open up and the sun come bursting through and you hear the angels singing and all that kind of crap. But it really, I went, yes, oh, yes, this is what I want to do. Inside my being, it was like, I can, it's hard to describe that moment, but I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I couldn't sleep all that night. It was a Friday night, and I got up the next morning, and I went to church, and there's no service, you know, the Catholic church. And I had been an altar boy where I sang in the choir when I was a little boy, and where my mother sang in the choir when she was a little girl. I went to that church. It was Saturday morning. There was no service. And I remember, I mean, I knelt down and I prayed. I said, God, I know what I want to do. I finally found what I want to do. If you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for any thing anymore. I was doing all these promises, you know, I'll do charities, I'll, I'll <laughs> I was really, but the thought that you could make a living making people laugh just overwhelmed me. And I knew this is what I was going to, I would die trying to do this. My prayers are answered, but it took a lot of years, you know, a lot of struggle and everything. But today, and for many, many years, I've been in show business 45 years, I've made a living making people laugh. Our special guest is Tom Dreesen, comedian, MC and motivational speaker. Now, you mentioned a lot of jobs there that you had. Was there one job that you learned the most from in terms of life lessons and that helped you later? Well, you know, probably, that's an interesting question, by the way. No one's ever asked me that question before, Paul. So, And I've done 8 million interviews. <laughs> that's an interesting question. I would say two things. One was being in the service, obviously that I would engage myself with people when I was in the service. But in the four years I was in the service, you take this boy out of the south side of Chicago and you put him in, and there's a redneck guy from North Carolina and there's a black guy from Detroit and there's an Irish guy from Boston and, and an Italian guy from Brooklyn and, and all these different, an Asian kid and a Filipino kid and, and we're all Americans, but we're from different cultures. And you put us together and we've got to, keep this ship afloat, so to speak, you know, so we have to work together. No matter what our differences are, no matter what our problems are, we have to work together to make this thing. And through that, we bond. So I learned a lot of life's lessons from that experience. I would say the service was a great deal. But then the other interesting thing would be a bartender. You know, being behind a bar in a neighborhood bar, you got to know the people. There were funny people. There were sad people. There were depressed people. There were... There were people who drank just to have some fun. There were people who drank to drown their sorrows. There were people who were accomplishing things in life, and there were people who were never going to get any further than where they were. In fact, their dreams not only weren't going to come true, they weren't going to ever leave the neighborhood. So that was really revealing to me. And by the way, I told a lot of jokes behind the bar. I, I would Before I ever thought I'd be a comedian, you know, I kept people laughing all the time. And you got more tips that way as well. But I would also create new material, original material about the neighborhood because I knew the characters in the neighborhood. So it was, it was really a good life's lesson for me. Tell me about the comics that influenced you the most. 
Well, you know, when, when I was a little boy, we had no television in the shack that I lived in. Everybody else had TVs around the, the neighborhoods and stuff, but where I, the shack I lived in, we had no TV, so I listened on the radio. And, of course, Bob Hope was a strong influence, hearing Bob Hope on the radio. But there was another show called Can You Top This? And it was all these comedians at each, whatever the subject matter is, they would tell a funny story about it. And that really fascinated me. It's, it's a radio. Now, the, also, two comedians that influenced me. One was Richard Pryor, and the other, of course, the other was Jack Benny. And for two totally different reasons. Richard Pryor spoke for my soul. I grew up in that neighborhood. I grew up in a predominantly black area, and I'm a street kid. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. So watching Richard Pryor talking about his neighborhood and, and his material, that spoke to my soul. And I met Richard years later, and he encouraged me I did an album in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy's Crazy. Richard wanted me to call it That Honky's Crazy, because as you know, he had an album called That Nigger's Crazy. Now, I would never, and he said, Tom, you should call, do the opposite of that, That Honky's Crazy. I said, Richard, I would do that, but no black guy ever called me a honky in my whole life. And I grew up in a predominantly black area. I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. I played football on, on a black football team. And you know, I grew up with the brothers, you know. And they never called me that. They called me white boy in a very affectionate way. They would say, hey, white boy, come here. We're going to play this afternoon. And, you know, or they'd be arguing about something. That's a lie. No, no, I, I scored two touchdowns that day. White boy would say, hey, white boy, come here. White boy, come over. And to this day, if I go back to my neighborhood, those black guys would call me white boy. I was 12 years old when I found out my name wasn't white boy, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it was an affectionate term. So prior was a great influence on me watching him do his material, but Jack Benny for a totally different reason. I think a person is an artist in any endeavor when they make their work look one word, effortless. Frank Sinatra made singing look easy. You will be my music. You will be my song. He said, I can do that. No, you can't. He just made it look like you could. Jack Benny made comedy look easy, and it's not. He made it look effortless, and it's not, but that's the way he made it. You know, when I teach young comedians, I give classes. I do a, a seminar sometimes for comedians called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There, where I combine my motivation speeches with teaching young stand-up comics. But how to enjoy this journey. I tell them, if you don't remember anything I say, and I write on the blackboard, it's conversation, not presentation. You know, so it, is it your act? Of course it's your act. But it's your job to make it look like it's not your act. Like Richard Pryor made it look like he was standing on a corner and a bunch of people gathered and he was telling them about things about the neighborhood. Jack Benny made comedy look easy, you know, and that's the way it's... You're an artist when you make your work look effortless. Whether you're a truck driver, a bricklayer, or a bartender, making your work look effortless, you know. Anyhow. Wow. Our special guest is comedian Tom Dreesen. A moment ago you mentioned Frank Sinatra. And you're known for the 14 years you opened for Frank Sinatra. That's one of the things you're known for. Given his stature as an artist and entertainer, were you nervous to meet him? I'll tell you, it's interesting. First of all, I like to think that that I didn't open for Frank Sinatra, that he closed for me. But but I'll leave that to you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I used to tell that joke in front of him. And, of course, he would get a big kick. He said, that's right. I closed for Tommy. He never. He had a great sense of humor in that direction. You know? But... Yeah, I was, you know, because first of all, let me digress. I was a fan. 
I mean, when I was a little boy shining shoes in all the bars in my neighborhood, he was on the jukebox. And where I grew up at, people loved Frank Sinatra on the south side of Chicago. Are you kidding me? He had two songs about Chicago. He was the epitome of what live entertainment was all about. The guys in the bar that were struggling, Frank Sinatra's daughter once said something very profound. Nancy said, my dad is a winner that losers identify with. So the guys in my neighborhood whose dreams are never going to come true, whose women left them, were was heartaches and sitting in a bar at quarter to three in the morning, pouring their heart out to the bartender. That's Frank, you know, it's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. He sang his songs was their life, was a, was a script of their life. And I was one of those guys. And here, when I first was going to meet him, I mean, I thought this was going to be the coolest thing in the world. An interesting thing happened. Many years ago, there was a comedian named Pat Henry that opened for Frank Sinatra. And Pat had taken a liking to me. He saw me doing, you know, I was performing opening for Fats Domino when the comedy team I was with had split up. I was opening for Fats Domino in Chicago at a place called Mr. Kelly's. And Pat Henry saw me and he took a liking to me. He He was a veteran comedian. And he was opening for Frank at the time. So they were in town. And he said to me, would you like to meet Frank Sinatra? And I said, oh, my God, yeah, are you kidding me? So he took me to the Ambassador East. Frank was in the bar in the pump room with his friend and bodyguard, Jilly Rizzo. And Pat went around the corner. And Frank said, Pat, where the hell have you been? He said, I was with my friend. This is my friend, Tom Dreesen, uh, uh, a comedian, a kid I told you about. And Frank looked at me and said, hi, kid. And that's all he said. And, uh, and, uh, and I had to leave after that. I went home and I put Hi Kid on my wall. I thought, wow, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> but then years later, when I met him, I was performing for him. I met him at rehearsal, and he was very polite. But by that time, I was a veteran comedian. I had done a lot of Tonight shows. I toured with Sammy Davis for three years. I toured with Smokey Robinson. I was I was doing Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, Atlantic City, you know, and and uh, had done you know Dinosaurs, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, and these shows and hundreds of shows when I met Frank. So I was a little bit more of a veteran, and yet still was very impressed. But I thought I'd work with him one week. I thought, oh, I was going to work with him one week, and then I would uh, try to get my picture taken with him and hang it in every bar and back in Chicago. But it turned out that on the second night that I was with him, performing with him, he and his wife Barbara took me out to dinner. In the middle of dinner, he I can remember like it was yesterday, he set his knife and his fork down, and he looked at me and he said, I like your material, and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it turned into 14 years and 45, 50 cities a year and, and, and a friendship. And I was a pallbearer at his funeral, and I spoke at his funeral. And I miss him every day of my life. A moment ago, you mentioned, you said Frank Sinatra had a good sense of humor. Could you describe what his sense of humor is like? What kind of stuff really tickled Mr. Sinatra. Well, by my humble definition, Paul, a sense of humor is not when you have the ability to laugh at other shortcomings or misfortunes. It's when you have the ability to laugh at your own. That's when you have a good sense of humor. And he had one. He, you could One night at a bar uh, in Palm Springs, a bar called Chaplin's Bar. Sidney Chaplin was the owner of the bar. Ironically, he was the son of Charlie Chaplin. He was an old guy, and, and uh, he owned a bar down there. Frank and I used to hang out in it. One night, it would, Sidney would go home. At 2 o'clock in the morning, he'd lock the place up. He'd give Frank the keys and say, you lock up when you leave, you know. And we could stay there and drink. One night, Frank forgot to lock the front door. And I was talking to him, looking over. And over his shoulder, he didn't notice, but a car pulled up. And this woman got out. There was two women in the car. One of them got out. And the driver stayed in the car. And she ran in and came in behind Frank. And she said, excuse me, excuse me. Do they have a jukebox in here? And Frank turned around. 
and looked her right in the eye and he said, I'm sorry, what did you say? She said, do they have a jukebox in here? He said, I don't think so. And he's looking around and he said, no. And then he looked at her and he said, I'll sing for you. She said, no thanks. And she turned around and she walked out. <laughs> and he watched her like a little boy going out the door. And I said to him, she obviously didn't recognize you. He said, maybe she did. You know, we both laughed about that, you know. Meaning you could do something on him. You know, they roasted him on the Dean Martin roast. Do you know there are people who can't be roasted? They can't because they don't have that sense of humor about themselves. But he allowed himself to be roasted a couple times in his life. And so people could poke fun at him. Of course, Don Rickles, the stories are legendary. The Rickles poking fun at him. And, and I could have fun with him. He'd laugh at himself. But he also had a weird sense of humor. He, Sammy Davis Jr. had a glass eye. And Julie Rizzo had a glass eye, his bodyguard. So Frank, one year, bought us, at Christmas, bought a set of binoculars, sawed them in half, and sent one to Julie and one to, one to Sammy Davis. You know? <laughs> oh. In Paul Schaefer's autobiography, we'll be here for the rest of our lives. He talks about going to Iraq with you and David Letterman. He says in the book that you would explain to him that sometimes Frank Sinatra, you called him Mr. S, sometimes Mr. Sinatra, Frank, or the old man. So how would you know? It's just simple. When when the crew was around, they referred to him as the old man, not O-L-D, old man. You know, the OL man in the service, any military guy. And by the way, Frank's road manager, Hank Catano, had spent 22 years in the Army. And he was a master sergeant. And we talked about, you talk about the captain. The captain of your ship is the old man. The captain of your outfit is the old man. John Kennedy was 23 years old, and he was captain of the PT-109. But the crew referred to him as the old man, even though he was only 23 years old. So it was an affectionate term given to the leader. So when we referred to, when the crew was around, you said, hey, the old man's uh, going to be here at five o'clock or I'm going to dinner with the old man or whatever it was with the crew. When I was alone with Frank in the car, he called me Tommy and I called him Frank. But when the company was around, like if there were people there in the dressing room and, and I was wanting to know when we were going to dinner, I'd say, Mr. S, when do you, you know, that was, that was what we referred to him as Mr. S out of respect because he was the boss. Very interesting. What was the best thing about touring with Frank Sinatra? Well, there was never a barber always says that his wife said it was never boring because <laughs> <laughs> you never knew what to expect. You know, Frank was volatile. I mean, there were so many things about touring with Frank Sinatra that were the best. One is it was never boring. Everywhere you went, it was so exciting. You flew in this private jet. Let me, Paul, let me give you an example. If, if we were going on the road. Okay, I'm going on the road and I'm going to do five or six one-nighters with Frank. Or maybe we're going to end up in Las Vegas. A limousine pulls up in front of my house. Two big guys come and carry all my luggage down. They'd carry me down if I wanted to be carried down, you know. We drive over to the private jet. You get aboard the private jet. I get out of the car. They load everything. I just go aboard the jet. The moment Frank stepped on that aircraft, the moment he put his foot on that aircraft, we took off. His pilot's name was Johnny Spots, one of his pilots. And he'd get up and say, let's go, Spots. All that pre-flight and all that other stuff better be done. You know, we were ready to rock and roll. The moment Frank got on, you'd fast your seatbelt. We'd take off down that runway. Now, we'd land in whatever city. Squad cars and limousines would, would meet Frank out at that, well, as we came up to private jet. Squad cars and limousines would rush us to the arena. 20,000 people in the arena. And getting in the arena about half an hour before the show, I'd get in my tuxedo, go out, and then introduce you. I'd go out and do my stand-up. Frank would do his show. We'd leave the arena. Squad cars and limousines would rush us to the private jet. We'd be flying over the venue. People weren't even in their cars yet. We were on our way to our next city. That's the way you travel. 
after the gig, sometimes we'd get back to a city and, and hang out till dawn because Frank never went to bed till the sun came up. You know, he was nocturnal. He was just one of those, and he wanted you to hang with him. So we'd hang and tell stories and laugh and just have the greatest times. I'd be on stage and, you know, be performing. You'd say, oh, look, there's the governor. You know, your mind, you're looking. You'd say, I'll be down. There's Gregory Peck. And you're performing. So oh, there's Kirk Douglas. And now you just keep performing. And you look and you'd say, well, I'll be down. The president of the United States. I mean, that's the type of people that came to see Frank. The power people of, of the country, of the world, came to see Frank Sinatra. Is there a Sinatra song that means the most to you? There's so many. It just depends on what mood I'm in. You know, I once asked him the same question, you know. It just depends what, what mood I'm in. You know, his music is the soundtrack of, of my life. You know, his music is the soundtrack of most of his fans' life. If you're going steady, you know, you, when somebody loves you, it's no good unless she loves you all the way. Uh, you're getting married, you know, love and marriage, you go together like a horse and carry, you know. You get divorced. And you're sitting in that bar, and 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 it's you're all alone, and and you're hurting, and so it's one for my baby, and it's quarter to three. There's no one in the place, but then you're going to get married again, and then there's that song, the second time around. <laughs> so his music is a soundtrack of your life, but being with him all those years, watching him perform, I mean, there were certain songs that I would sit in the wings and and watch how the audience reacted to his song. Come fly with me was always like, you know, it's like a journey. Come fly with me. You know, let's fly away. You know, it was always, I love the way he sometimes would even open with that song. But when he did my way, it was always the song before last in concert. Last song would be New York, New York, because you want to leave the audience on an up tune. And he would leave them on an up tune. But the song my way always was significant in his life. But at the end of his life, when we, he, he was 78 and he sang till he was 80. But he's now 76, 77, 78. And when he would start to do that song, the lights would go down and a spot would hit him. And I'd be in the wings watching, looking at the audience. And then he'd start to sing, and now the end is near. And though I faced that final curtain, the audience would burst into tears. His fans would say, we love you, Frank. We love you. Long live Frank Sinatra, we love you. And as he did that song, because that's when that song, those lyrics, the meaning of those lyrics, you know, and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. That was, was exactly what he was about. Regrets, I had a few, but then again, too few to mention. In that audience were people whose father, that was their song too. They owned one bread truck and they ended up owning 50 of them or they own, you know, they, they started out small, their grandfather and then, and, 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 and built up 90 stores from when they had one little clothing store, you know, it was their song too. You know, that song is played at more funerals of men than any other song. That song had a profound effect on me watching him sing it to the audience. 2015 is the centenary year of Mr. Frank Sinatra's birth. Mm-hmm. What do you think people will think of Frank Sinatra in 50 years? What will people say? His music will live on. They'll probably say he was the greatest pop singer of all time, and there's no question about it. I mean, the greatest singers of all. Steve Lawrence once said to Frank Sinatra, you know, you ruined it for all the rest of us. And Steve Lawrence is one hell of a great singer, a great singer. But he knew that everybody, every singer knew once Frank Sinatra sang it, it never was sung quite that way before. Frank would get a song and he would read it like a poem over and over like it was a poem before he sang it. People forget 
what a brilliant actor Frank Sinatra was. You know he won the Academy Award. He never took an acting lesson. I once said to him in front of Gregory Peck, Kirk Douglas, Clint Eastwood, Robert Wagner, all these great actors. I said, Frank, did you ever study acting? And Gregory Peck grabbed my arm and said, oh, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. When you gave Frank Sinatra a song, to him it was a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? Frank would immerse himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in a bar whose woman left him and he's never going to find love again. And also the joy of the song. Like I said, come fly with me, let's fly. No one interpreted lyrics like Frank Sinatra, and they won't 50 years from now. There'll never be anybody like him ever again. He was one of a kind. Now, the other side of that was, I'll give you what people will think about him. I was asked, I don't know how many times to do this show of a young Latino had a show here in, in L.A., a hip-hop station. And he wanted to interview me. And I kept turning it down because I thought, what would I be doing on that show? Why would he want me on the show? And it might be one of those shows where they bring you on to put you down. And so my manager kept calling me. I said, no. Well, anyhow, I met the guy one night at the Laugh Factory in Sunset Boulevard. I was doing some new material, working on new material. And the guy came up and introduced himself to me and said, please, come on my show, Mr. Dreesen. I'm a fan. And, and so I went to do a show. And it was a hip-hop show. And he started asking me about Sinatra. And the switchboard lit up. And people calling in, 17 years old, 19 years old, 22 years old, 23 years old, guys and girls, at intermission, at commercial break, I said to him, I don't get it. I mean, this is a hip-hop station. Frank Sinatra's music is so far from this and all this interest by young people. And he said, now, can I swear on this? Yeah. Okay, Paul. So, I mean, I don't don't want to offend any of your listeners, but this is what the guy actually said to me. We're at commercial break. I said, I don't get it that that the young people calling in, he said, oh, man. It's not about his music. He was a fucking outlaw, man. And I started laughing because that coined it. Yes, he was an outlaw. He did it his way. And people of all generations respect that, that he took the blows and he got a lot of blows and he was down on his knees in his life, but he got back up again and he did it his way. So that explained it to me. Yes, of course, that is the truth about Frank. Was he right all the time? Hell no, you know. I always say this, Frank Sinatra was not a saint, but he did some saintly things in his life. Hmm. I was watching this clip of you on Letterman, and you talked for a moment there about Frank Jr. And not too long ago, we had the opportunity to welcome Frank Sinatra Jr. What do you think about Mr. Sinatra, Frank Sinatra Jr.? First of all, how would you like to go into baseball with the name Mickey Mantle Jr. or Babe Ruth Jr.? I have tremendous respect for Frank Jr. And he's a good singer, by the way. I mean, you know, I mean, there's only one Frank Sinatra, of course, but his son is an excellent singer. And in the 14 years I toured with Frank, only twice did Frank ever cancel where he couldn't, his throat was so bad that he couldn't, he called it his reed. Frank never called it his throat. He said, my reed, my reed is a little sore. So he couldn't perform and Frank Jr. subbed. And I, I would open for Frank Jr. And, and, he, and both times he did an outstanding job. And I've seen him perform many times. He's a great musician. And, you know, I think the world of him. I mean, I think he's just a great entertainer. And by the way, an extremely intelligent. Definitely. Which I'm sure you know, Paul. Extremely intelligent man. Well-read, well-versed, well-read. Interesting guy. We talked about, we mentioned Letterman. How did you meet Mr. David Letterman? I came off stage one night at the comedy store when this young kid with a, a beard, a, he had a red beard, <laughs> and an old red pickup truck. I came off stage one night, and there he was. And he said, I really enjoyed your show. 
And I said, oh, well, no kidding. And, and what is your name? He said, I'm Dave Letterman. I said, oh, where are you from, Dave? You said, I'm from Indianapolis. I said, oh, you know, I'm from the south side of Chicago. And we started talking sports. And we became fast friends. Him and I played basketball together. We played racquetball together. We jogged together. You know, we go jogging. Uh, we went to different comedy clubs together. We, you know, Of course, we performed at the comedy store, but then we went to the Ice House. And in fact, I got a picture on my wall of him and I and uh, George Miller at the Ice House. And then George Miller, God rest his soul, a good friend of mine and David. But then we went to a comedy magic club in Hermosa Beach and different places. We became friends. David was very shy. Today, now that I, you know, as years go by, I realize that he's really shy. He's almost a recluse, you know, that had I known how private he was, I may not have been so aggressive in my friendship, but I'm an outgoing guy, extroverted. And, and so I kept taking it to him. And we became friends before I realized how, how shy he was. Had I known how private he was, I probably would have respected that and maybe not been as aggressive in my friendship with him. But I didn't know that. And, and, and he responded well. And so we started hanging out and, and just had a lot of laughs together and, and had a lot in common. I mean, I, he's a good basketball player. He would, he would never admit that he's good at anything. One thing you have to learn about David when you get to know him, that he really doesn't have a clue as to how good he really is, and he really doesn't want you to tell him how good he is either. He was a good basketball player, so we played basketball together. We had a, I played on a team. I was the captain of a team called the Comedy Store of Honor, and David was a power forward. I played guard, and we had Jimmy Walker, a lot of Johnny Witherspoon, a lot of other guys on the team. We actually were 17-0 and 0 that season, and uh, that's how I met him. And, and, uh, and, of course, loved watching him on stage. He had such a quick mind. You know, I really enjoyed that. You know. Aside from his shyness, this is kind of a simple question, but really, I want to know what is Dave like? Let's put it as a friend. You know, first of all, if you were to give the eulogy to Tom Dreesen or to Paul Leslie or to whoever, his mother would say things about him that no one else would. His wife would say things about him no one else would. His children would see him from a totally different point, and his buddies from a totally different point. So I can only approach it from a friend. He's as loyal a friend as you'd ever want. I know that I could call him any time, day or night, and he'd be there for me. I know that. I know that. And I don't have to see him every day to know that. We sometimes don't talk for weeks or a month, and yet we'll email each other or, or talk. I know that no matter what I wanted or what I needed, that he'd be there. And he knows that of me. So as a friend, he's very loyal. As a human being, he, again, I, I repeat, he doesn't know how good he really is. I dare say that most of the sketches and things you see on TV and the late night shows, David originated a lot of that. And they just took it to another level or to another place sideways. But he's very creative. I mean, he's shy. He's very shy. He's not good in, in public. I always tell the, the funny story. I mean, David will go out, he'll go out in public and he, he can... If given the option, I would believe he wouldn't. He'd say, let's have dinner in a little private place. Or, but he's not extroverted, outgoing person in the audience. He, on stage, he is. He has a stage persona that's different from his personal persona, you know. But I always tell the story, uh, one, every time I go to New York, we'd try to find some place to eat. But he'd always want to know about the place, what's it all about, where's it at, you know, where we're going to be sitting. But, you know. Very shy about things. So one time I go there and he said, hey, we're going to have dinner at the 21 Club. And I went, wow, the 21 Club, that place is packed. I used to go there with Sinatra all the time. And, and I thought, wow, David must be getting over some of his shyness and, and we're going to have dinner at 21 Club. Wow. So after the, the show that night, we get in the limo and we 
go to the 21 Club. We get out and we walk out, we get out of limo, we're going inside, and the major, hey, Dave, how you doing? And I remember Martha Stewart was in there that night. I remember one guy, and he waved at her, and, and we're going through this big crowd of the people, and the major D's taking us, and now he's taking us out of the dining room into the kitchen. Now we're walking through the kitchen, we're saying hello to the chefs, and now we're going down winding stairs, and we get down to a, like a little walkway, and the Major D said to David's secretary, take this iron rod and push it between the two bricks. And she did it and it went click and then it made a sound and they pushed the wall and now there's a table and we're in a wine cellar and there's just a table for like four of us. And Dave said, isn't this great? I said, no, this is nuts. <laughs> this is crazy. This isn't great. I mean, what are we down here for? The Russians going to attack or something? You know, but that's the way he liked it. He thought that was so cool. What do you think is going to happen when he retires? What are your feelings about that? Do you think that he's going to still do something? or You'll never see him again. Say no? goodbye. If you're a David Letterman fan and you like David Letterman, so take a real good look at him when he says goodbye because you're never going to see him again. He's... He's a, he's a shy guy. He'll wander. I mean, he's got he's got his own. It's no secret. He's got a, a big branch out in in uh, Montana, and uh, and he's got an island in the Caribbean somewhere. And he 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 will do that. He'll help raise his son. He's this adores his son Harry, and he and Regina, his wife, will uh, live happily ever after because you know he'll get out on the ranch. He's got horses out there and things like that. And he goes fishing. He's got a, another place that he has that's got a, a, like a river running through it, and and that's what he. And he'll call me once in a while, and I'll call him, and maybe I'll go visit him once in a while, and hope to see him and, and laugh and talk about the old days, but you won't see him again. Wow. What is your all-time favorite sound? Laughter, of course. The sound of laughter. I once wrote a poem that became a country song. I won't do the whole thing for you, but the opening is, as far back as I can remember, or shortly thereafter, I love to hear the sound of laughter. Whether grown-ups or children, that really didn't matter to me. If I could make people laugh, I was as happy as I could be. I mean, there's more to it, but I'm not going to do the whole thing for you. But the sound of laughter, ah, oh, it's just, it warms my heart. By the way, let me say this. The sound of my children's laughter, when I made them laugh, God, that just tickled me to no end to make my kids laugh when they were little. And I used to do silly things just to, just to make them laugh. If I could ask God for one favor, this one favor, I would ask, could I go back in time and have my three children small just one more time? For 24 hours, I would not sleep for one second just to be with them as little kids for 24 hours because I just love the, the sound of their laughter. Other than laughter, what do you hope people get out of your performances? First of all, what they'll get if they laugh is that it's laughter is healing. I hope they'll forget their troubles just for a moment. You know, whatever the, whatever is on their mind. Laughter is two things. Number one, I mean, if you dissect comedy, it gets boring, but when people laugh, if they're watching a comedian on the stage, they're not thinking of their problems. The brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time. It can only function one thought at a time. So if you're laughing, a comedian, you're not thinking of your problems. The other thing is, because of Norman Cousins, the guy who wrote the book Laughter Map, and he wrote another book called The Anatomy of an Illness, Norman Cousins was dying of a terminal illness, a heart problem, and the doctor told him it came from stress. And he thought laying in the hospital, if negative input, stress made me ill, then positive input would make me well, the opposite. So he checked himself out of the hospital and only watched I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera, Three Stooges, The Marx Brothers. And he only listened to comedy albums. He never watched the evening news, never listened to evening and never read the papers. Just only listened to funny things. He lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. 
because of him, UCLA did research on what happens to the human body when you laugh. And they realized that after a hearty laugh, that endorphins are released from the bloodstream, chemicals that, that go into, released from the brain into the bloodstream. And so that feeling you get after a hearty laugh, that, oh, that sense of well-being you get after laughing hard, is because your body's gone through an actual chemical change. So laughter is psychologically uplifting and physiologically therapeutic. So therefore, comedians are physicians of the soul. So you can call me Dr. Dreesen if you want, Paul. But, you know, <laughs> I'm being facetious, but that's what I hope they get. That's a long story. That I hope they keep it with a sense of well-being and, God, wasn't it fun and I forgot my problems. And and you know what? He's just like me. He has pain like me and he is. That's what the comedian is. He's every man, you know, or every woman. You know, we all we suffer the same. Well, Dr. Dreesen, what is the best thing about being Tom Dreesen? Is that I get a chance to talk to people like Paul Leslie. Well, How was that? That's very kind. For anyone who's listening to, because really you're talking to everyone who's listening, what would you like to say to everyone that's listening in? I hope your dreams come true, because mine have. And the dreams do come true. That's what I wish for every, everyone, you know, that if you find the work that you love, you never work a day in your life. Very few people find that. I was lucky. But I have to tell you, in honesty, I prayed for that. I actually, I, mean, I sound like a religious guy, and I'm not, but I... I went to eight years of Catholic school, and I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm uh, and I believe, I believe there's a higher power, and you call it whatever you want to call it, but I believe in higher power, and I believe that prayers are answered, and I did that. I used to, before I ever was a comedian, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I used to pray. I say, I'd be sitting in a bar at two o'clock in the morning, saying, "God, this can't be what you want me to do. There must be something out there I could be doing." And when I found that, I found the work that I love. The wind, as the Irish say, the wind got at my back. That's what I wish for everybody. I, wish, I hope that if you haven't found what the work that you love, keep searching for it. It's out there somewhere, you know. And then, of course, the other thing I give you with my prescription, Dr. Dreesen, right? Laugh out loud ten times a day. I don't care if you're home alone. You know, when I was in acting class, there's scenes you had to cry, but there's scenes you had to laugh, too. You know, just burst back and go, you know, <laughs> you know, look in the mirror and laugh out loud because it's jogging of the heart. And it does release those endorphins. Practice laughing. Try to find something to laugh about at least 10 times a day. Even if you have to do it alone, laugh out loud. Look in the mirror and look at yourself and say, what a mess, and start laughing. You know. <laughs> My last question. Who is Tom Dreesen? He's a little boy with a shine box in the dead of winter, freezing on his way to shine shoes in a bar, in all the bars in my neighborhood, so he can get enough money to feed his brothers and sisters. That's who he is, and that's who will always be in my mind. That little boy will just, he, he will always be with me, cold and hungry, but wanting to help others who are also cold and hungry. Mr. Dreesen, thank you so much for sharing with us. It's been a well, real thank pleasure. You. Thank you. And I wish you the best. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at The Paul Leslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. 
Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour. Hour.